Welcome to True Crime B&B. This is week 67. And I'm Beth. I'm Bailey. And today, I know that you guys are confused because I was the bad guy last week, but I am the bad guy again this week. Mm-hmm. This case was suggested to me by my friend Brian He remembers when this case happened. It happened to someone who went to his high school and wow what a case this was okay i'm warning you there's a lot to this it's a devastating story and i don't think it's been covered by any other podcasts so i'm just going to try and do it as much justice as i can in our little format because Mm -hmm. our format's not really set up for the deep dives so i've covered it as well as i can it's going to be a longer story than normal for us okay i'm ready this story takes place in america's georgia It's a small city that's two and a half hours south of Atlanta. Americus currently has about 16,000 residents, which is down quite a bit from just under 18,000 who lived there in the late 1970s. The Americus city administrator in 1979 was a man named Leland Bell Jr. The Bell family had a long history in Americus. He and his wife, Catherine Morgan Bell, raised their four children there. In age order, the kids were George Davenport, who was the half-brother of the three girls, and then there was Kathy, then Margaret Lee, who just went by Lee, and then Melanie. The family was active in the America's First Baptist Church and active in the community. They were service-driven and well-respected. Everyone knew, or at least knew, of the Bells. Lee, the third child, was considered one of the most popular girls at America's high school. She was an honor student, ranked second in her class of 300. People described her as sweet, kind, and thoughtful. Her teachers all considered her to be one of their star students. She never caused trouble in their classes. She got great grades, and she didn't try to take attention from anybody else. She worked hard. She did her best at everything she set out to do. She was a tiny girl, only 5'2 and 100 pounds, and she was objectively gorgeous. Just a beautiful girl. She had dark hair and brown eyes, and she looked older than her 15 years. In the early summer of 1979, Lee had been re-elected to the America's High School cheer squad only the week before, as she had finished ninth grade. So she would rejoin the squad in the fall as a rising sophomore, and the squad had all sat down together at the end of the school year to choose the fabric for their new uniforms. Wednesday, June 6, 1979, Lee had just dropped off her payment for the annual cheerleader camp that took place every year at Georgia Southwestern State University in America's. That evening of June 6th, she had left home between 7.30 and 8 p.m. driving her mom's car, headed to the ball field to watch the softball games with some of her friends. Yes, I said driving. Yes, she's 15. Small town kids and country kids drive. Mm-hmm. Patty Horton, Sydney Conley, and Lee were the best of friends. Patty was also a cheerleader, and they had known one another and been BFFs since at least the fourth grade. Monday night, they had all slept over at Patty's house, Tuesday night at Lee's, So now Wednesday, the three met up at the ball fields. Americus had a sports complex behind Americus High School that had several softball fields, a running track, tennis courts, and bleachers for spectators. And that was kind of the place to be for a lot of locals. They met their friends out, they sneaked booze into the bleachers and cups, they watched softball and socialized, and Lee was no exception. On this night, Lee's boyfriend wasn't there. She dated Doug Parrish, who played tight end on the Americus High School football team, but she hadn't seen Doug since Tuesday. The sports complex was bustling. There were over 300 people there running at the high school track, playing softball, playing tennis, riding bikes, or sitting in the bleachers or on blankets or chairs watching these things. 
She was there watching a church league softball game and chatting and visiting with her friends. Between 8.45 and 9 p.m., she decided this game was pretty boring and she wanted to ditch the church league field and head over to the city league field. And then if nothing interesting was happening there, she was just going to head home. Lee walked away from her friends towards the city league field and then they lost sight of her. Another local woman saw Lee talking to some young man, tossing a softball back and forth, and stopped to chat with him for a few minutes. And then those two walked out of sight and the woman didn't know where they had gone after that. At some point after this sighting, Lee had gotten back into her mother's car and headed out, but two blocks from the field, the car ran out of gas. The car had died right in the middle of Harold Avenue. Meredith Reese, who is a few years older than Lee, had been riding her bike, and around 9 to 9.15, she had come across Lee after her car had run out of gas. She helped Lee push the car out of the middle of the street. Now it's just rolled off to the side, but now it's blocking a driveway where they pushed it to, but they had done the best they could do, and they just left the car there. Mm -hmm. After the car was out of the way, Meredith offered to go back with her to the ball field to find her sister, or even to walk her home so she wasn't stranded alone after dark wasn't quite dark yet, but it was getting there. Lee said she wasn't scared and that she was going to walk back to the softball game and get Kathy, her oldest sister. The spot where Lee's mother's car ran out of gas was almost directly in front of her cheerleader sponsor, Mrs. Sue Parker's house. Mrs. Parker was also an English teacher at the high school, but Lee didn't go there to ask for help. She didn't go there to make any phone calls. She just took off walking, supposedly back towards the ball field. Her father, Leland Bell, started to call Lee's friend's houses sometime around midnight after she hadn't returned home. She was supposed to be home between 10 and 10.30. The Hortons, Patty's family, set out in their car looking for Lee, just driving the streets hoping to see her somewhere. Leland also went out looking for her, and he found the car only five blocks from the Bell house. He couldn't start it since it was out of gas, so he just put it in neutral and let the car coast backwards out of the way of the driveway that it was blocking, and then he left it where it stopped. Alarmed by the abandoned car, though, Leland called the Sumter County Sheriff, Randy Howard, who went to the Bell House in the middle of the night. The sheriff contacted the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, at 9 o'clock the next morning. Patty was closer to Lee than her own sisters, and she wanted to be there when Lee came home so she stayed at their house after Lee's disappearance. More than 200 police officers and volunteers spread across the town and countryside to search for Lee. People hoped she had just run away or just taken off, but no one really believed she would do that. Some offered theories that maybe she'd slipped off to join some of her friends who were on vacation in Panama City, Florida, which was about 190 miles away. But as those theories were rejected, it became impossible to see any likelihood except that Lee was not missing of her own accord. She must have been taken by someone. Local residents joined local businesses quickly in raising over $10,000 in rewards for any information leading to the rest of whoever could have done anything bad to someone that was so beloved. The local state representative, William Murray, a friend of the Bell family, requested that the governor also contribute another $10,000 to the reward money to sweeten the pot, but the governor, George Busby, pitched in only $1,000 out of his contingency fund. The Carter administration even reached out to Mayor Johnny Sheffield to offer assistance in solving the case and express the president's sorrow in the community's loss. Greg Barfield, Brian Mathis, and Tommy Holloman were three boys from her high school and they had gone out on their own to search for signs of Lee after they found out that she was missing. Two days after her disappearance, Friday, June the 8th, sometime after lunch, the boys had been joined by other searchers, and they had found footprints and a pair of women's panties lying on the ground near a bridge that went over Muckley Creek. 
They felt sure this must be the right area, which triggered foreboding and it stopped them right in their tracks. They wisely didn't go under the bridge. Mm. Five people stayed and waited at the bridge to prevent anybody else from plowing forward and a few others went back to get authorities. When the officers arrived, they called a canine tracker from Dooley County to search for Lee's scent established from some articles of clothing that her parents had provided. The dog picked up the scent and several times tracked it, leading to the edge of the Muckley Creek underneath the side of the bridge on the Twin Bridges Road. The handler stepped into the creek to check whether there was any sign or if he could see anything just by stepping a little bit in. And as he stepped in up to his thighs, something bumped into his leg. What had bumped against his leg had been the body of Lee Bell. At what day was she found? On Friday. Okay. What had bumped against his leg had been the body of Lee Bell, who had been unceremoniously pushed underneath the surface and lodged in and under some tree branches and a log. Overhead, a clump of trees arched out over the creek, modeling the light and making the water appear murky and hard to see into. First responders recovered her body at 3.35 p.m. on June the 8th, as Lee was gently pulled to the surface of the four feet of water where she had been discarded. Against protocol, one of the special agents from GBI had asked for a blanket to cover Lee's body as she was retrieved and placed on a stretcher rather than a sheet, which is normal. It was later said that the agent did this because there were so many people on the scene and he was trying to prevent her from being visible through a wet sheet since she had just been removed from the water. This, however, turned out to be an unfortunate decision because even though it did do what he was hoping it would do, it also made it impossible to isolate any fiber evidence that may have been on her body. Lee's father, Leland Bell, went to the morgue to make positive identification, and when she was revealed, he collapsed and passed out from the shock. Lee had been retrieved from the creek fully clothed, but her genes were undone. She had been raped both vaginally and anally. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound to the back of her head. The report says that blood was detected in the panties, but this is unclear to me because they say she was fully dressed. But the boys had found the pair of panties, which is what led to her remains being recovered. So then she wasn't really fully dressed, she was just outwardly dressed. There was no blood or tissue under her fingernails, but a pubic hair was found on her jeans. She had a 0.03% blood alcohol content, which for a girl of 100 pounds is about one beer or mixed drink over an hour's time. For comparison, the driving limit in Georgia is 0.08 blood alcohol content or 0.00 for minors. Her car keys had still been in her jeans pocket. Her watch, which she had been wearing, was stopped at 6.52, although it was fully wound, so it's unclear how that related to her time of death. Lee's time of death was determined by the head of the state crime lab at around midnight of June 6th or 7th, plus or minus several hours because she had been in the water. So anywhere from the time she was last seen at 9.30 until 2.30 or 3 a.m. While the county sheriff's lieutenant stood watch outside of the morgue, a local man walked down the hall, acting oddly. The man was observed by Lieutenant Tondu, who said that he walked down the hall towards the morgue from the direction of the emergency room, took a few steps towards him, stopped, took a few more steps, stopped again, and then just turned and walked away. He didn't say a word, said Lieutenant Tondi and that struck him as really unusual behavior. The man's name was George Genulet, and he was at the hospital to have his foot looked at. Genulet had thought his foot had become infected. The interesting part of that was the coincidence. Genulet's foot, the infected one, had been injured on the previous Monday, two days before Lee's disappearance, so four days before he was at the emergency room. The injury had happened when Genulet got into a fight with George Davenport, 
George Davenport was Lee Bell's older half-brother. Okay. Janulette and Davenport played on the same softball team, along with another guy, Greg Farr, who's going to become more important later in the story. There were rumors that Janulette had vowed revenge on Davenport, and that he had mentioned Lee as part of the getting-even scheme, but in the end there was no evidence of these statements, and they couldn't be proven at having been said. When George Davenport was asked about it, about the fight, he said they had gotten into a fight at Greg Farr's party on Monday night, the Ginulette had punched him and knocked him to the floor, but that they were now fine and there were no hard feelings. Sumter County Sheriff Randy Howard had actually questioned George Ginulette at his girlfriend's apartment the morning after Lee's disappearance. Ginulette had claimed to have been at Deborah Slaughter, his girlfriend's home, all night since 11 p.m. the previous night. His name had come up as someone who had been seen by many people at the sports complex watching the softball games the night Lee went missing. Patty and Sydney, Lee's best friends, said that she had pointed him out to them the night at the ball field as an older guy who was always trying to get her attention, and Lee told them that she wasn't interested in him, but he just kept asking her out anyway. Patty and Sydney thought Lee might be a little bit intimidated by him. The sheriff had assigned an eight-person task force to the crime, and they were working 24 hours a day after finding her remains. In addition to Ginulette, there were approximately 40 potential suspects that were questioned, asked for pubic hair samples, some provided them, and some even took polygraphs. They found these potential suspects by interviewing Lee's friends and family who knew best what had been happening in her life. But as they asked Lee's closest friends for anything that might be relevant, her good friend Margie Robinson told them that the week before her disappearance, Lee had been at a graduation party and was approached by George Genulette, who asked her what grade she was in. She had jokingly told him that she was a graduating senior, which was untrue. Then she said, you might know me, I'm a Belle. Kathy is my sister. He had asked her out several times, which she declined, but he persisted to the point where Lee's mother had even become aware of it. Genulette had also, since months prior, been asking out Lee's oldest sister, Kathy, who had also declined him. Kathy knew him on a speaking basis, but no more than that. She had seen him at some parties and he always hit on her repeatedly and she just kept telling him no. Margie Robinson asked if Lee was afraid of this guy, to which she replied, Sort of, I think so. Lee's friends and family senses about Genulette were on high alert because of his strange behavior after Lee's disappearance. The morning after she didn't come home, Genulette showed up uninvited at the bell house, where family and friends were gathering during this crisis. He didn't belong there, he wasn't close to anyone there, but he showed up stupidly asking if anyone knew where Lee was. Well, if they knew where Lee was, they wouldn't be gathered here. They'd be go-finding Lee. Yeah, have you been under a rock, my dude? Well, he obviously... Knew she was missing. Like, yeah. What are you... Then, without being asked, he volunteered a statement that he didn't even know she was missing until police had showed up at his girlfriend Deborah Slaughter's house earlier that morning to question him. He then made himself at home and took a seat right next to the aunt, and no one wanted him there, and no one was talking to him. Lee's friends and family found it really odd that he would just insert himself into this group of tight-knit people who were worried about someone they loved. Not like they were friends. No. Weird. Genulette had been seen with two friends, Randy Bishop and Derek Henderson, near the sports complex the evening of June the 6th. That was the night she went missing. Mm -hmm. He had been driving Deborah Slaughter's car, a green Chevy Camaro. Because of this sighting, Bishop and Henderson were also interviewed and placed on the potential suspect list. Genulette claimed that he had been with Bishop and Henderson all evening, dropping them off at his apartment at 10.45 or 11 p.m., and then going to stay the night at Deborah Slaughter's apartment with her. Several people had spotted Lee throughout that evening. 
She was seen by two people with a blonde guy that they thought was her boyfriend, Doug Parrish, although Parrish claimed in his interview not to have seen Lee since Tuesday night, the day before she disappeared. Meredith Reese, who had helped Lee push the car out of the middle of the street around 9 p.m., was later hypnotized to try to get more details of what she had seen the night of the disappearance. Meredith had also seen three cars at the intersection of Harold Avenue and Glessner Street, which was adjacent to the stalled Bell car. One car was flying down Glessner Street very fast, but she couldn't be sure of how many occupants there were or even of what color the car was. Another woman said she and her family had been driving up Glessner Street after 9 p.m. and saw a green Camaro coming towards them, driving very fast right down the middle of the street. The driver had a beard, just like George Genulot. They also saw Lee walking down the same road. Another sighting of Lee was at McDonald's between 9.30 and 10 p.m. by someone who had seen her earlier at the ball fields. When he had waved at her at the ball fields, she had waved back. When he saw her now, she was in a dark green Chevrolet, although he thought maybe it was an Impala or a Caprice. And if you look at the pictures of Impalas and Caprices from that time period, they look a lot alike, okay. but the Camaro stands out. It's not anything like them. So he was either paying more attention to seeing Lee and wondering why she wasn't waving back than paying attention to the car, you know, the actual type of car it was, or it was just not the same car. This time when he saw Lee and waved, she didn't wave back to him and that struck him as unusual because she was usually very friendly and, and warm. On the day of Lee's funeral, over a thousand people packed the little Baptist church that the family attended and over 300 floral tributes were sent. She was buried in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Americus where she now lies with two of her siblings. By September, the reward had been increased to $25,000, but still no one had been arrested. Many people suspected they knew who had done it. A lot of people thought it was Genulette. But even those who didn't specifically think it was him thought it was likely someone local, someone who could simulate grief, who could move in and out of the local circles, who knew the area where she had been found. Mm -hmm. At the high school, it took a toll on the students and the faculty. People weren't really talking about Lee. They couldn't seem to process what had happened to her. The cheerleading squad did not replace her, and rather than the traditional 10 cheerleaders, they continued all the way through that year with nine for the 1979-1980 school year. Carrie Grimes, one of Lee's favorite teachers, said no one had brought her up to him. No one had mentioned her name at all, but that didn't mean that they weren't grieving. He said he knew everybody loved her and that she was achingly missed, but the people had to find a way to go on. And for some, that just meant pushing the pain down and continuing to move forward. The school staff and faculty wanted to memorialize Lee, but out of concern for her family's privacy and their emotional state, they decided to wait until the time seemed more appropriate. The sheriff had three or four focused suspects, but the evidence was mostly circumstantial. He didn't want to arrest one of them if there wasn't enough evidence to get a conviction. The investigation took officers to Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, other parts of Georgia, and as far away as Kansas. The investigative team was comprised of the Sumter County Sheriff, the Americas Police Department, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and even the FBI. But like most of the residents of the town, the sheriff believed it was a local who had committed the crime. This feeling led at first to anger, and then fear, and then a crushing despair of what had happened to their innocent, safe little town. People were afraid to let their kids outside. Grown men were carrying firearms or putting them on the nightstand while they were sleeping at night. So there was palpable relief when on November 11, 1979, George Genulet was arrested in Warner Robins, Georgia and charged with Lee's murder and rape. Some on the investigative team weren't convinced of his implication in the crime, but many others were. 
The circumstantial evidence was plentiful, but there wasn't much in the way of physical evidence, especially after the blanket incident that ruined any fibers they might have been and able to get. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, that, that was like one of the only physical evidence they really had, other than like a photograph of them doing the crime, you know what I that's mean? That's right. So, yeah. oh, that's rough. Genulet was held without bond until his arraignment in December, at which he was indicted. The trial was moved to Macon County after the defense successfully argued for a change of venue because Sumter County would not be able to provide a fair trial due to the local outrage and the grief, plus the continuous news coverage on the crimes against Lee. His trial started in January 1980. In fact, it started on January 29th and finished on February the 1st. A trial that has this much public opinion now mm-hmm. might last weeks or a month in the modern world or longer, depending on what it is. But in 1980, it lasted four days. Genulette's girlfriend, Deborah Slaughter, had previously testified at a preliminary hearing in November 1979 that Genulette had told her that he had killed Lee Bell. But when the trial went forward, Deborah Slaughter recanted, saying that Genulette had made the statement, but that he had made it in a sarcastic manner because he was mad at her for asking whether he had done it. The transcript of the November hearing was introduced, which documented that Deborah had originally made this statement of what Janiela had said to her. Quote, God damn it, you think I did it. I tell you, I drugged her, I shot her, and I threw her in the water. Her new testimony was that he had said, quote, Deborah, you think I did it. Well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to say I did it? Well, that's a big difference. Yeah. What she said in November is more likely to be what he actually said. Well, was there any evidence that she had been drugged other than the 0.03 alcohol levels? Or did they not perform necessarily toxicology back then? I don't really know. We'll come back to that. (laughs) When the prosecution declared Deborah Slaughter a hostile witness and asked for Judge W.F. Blanks to declare a mistrial, the judge rejected the request. It was also alleged by Deborah Slaughter that the GBI consulting psychologist, Dr. Stuart Wiggins, who had been assigned to question her, took her to a hotel room where he questioned her continuously every day until 3 a.m. He only let her eat one meal a day late in the evening. They were drinking the whole time, and she spent four nights in a row. She said he told her that Genialat didn't love her anymore, but that he, Wiggins, was actually capable of loving her. So this guy, this Dr. Wiggins, is a shit show. He's enough for an episode all by himself. Okay, he also needs arrested. That's... Well, let's... Beyond unprofessional looking. Okay. Yeah. Ugh. Suffice it to say that he started off in everybody's mind down there as a distinguished and respectable doctor, but by the time he left town, he had gone off the deep end. And I don't mean like he was just unprofessional. I mean, I think he lost his mind. He really had some sort of a mental break. He got extremely paranoid when the sheriff deputy came to pick him up from the hotel so they could take him back home or send him home. He had taken his three-piece suit and cut it off into shorts, and his hair was standing straight up, and it looked like his shirt had been wadded up in a ball for days. It's like he had a nervous breakdown or something. How bizarre. And you don't think it has anything to do with the case specifically? It just happened to be during this case? I don't know. Huh. All I know is what I read about him in the newspapers. Okay. Cut off his pants. He got extremely paranoid. He tried to shoot a sheriff's deputy. And they ended up committing him into a mental institution. At some point after that, one of his friends got him released. He went home and he later took his own life. Mm. So I don't know what happened to that doctor. But Stuart Wiggins, wow. 
there's just yeah that's a story for a whole nother day it sounds like because that's <laughs> that's one of the rabbit holes i told you i had to really just force myself not to go down because oh, i i would have spent another five days just reading on reading up on Stuart Wiggins. Well, that's going to be my personal project for the rest of the week is figure out <laughs> what happened to this guy. Overall, the trial was kind of a cluster, too. Mm-hmm. Slaughter later testified that Genulat had argued with her when he got back to her apartment that night and that she had made him sleep on the couch while she slept in her bed. So she couldn't exactly account for his whereabouts for that part of the night while she was sleeping. But she couldn't pinpoint the timing of when she did see him and when she went to bed and when she got up and... So her testimony was not all that useful. So there was a lot of cloudiness related to the individuals that were involved in the investigation. Almost all of the evidence that was presented in court was circumstantial. 37 witnesses presented testimony, and some of the testimony that was presented was that Lee had turned down Genulat and rejected his romantic overtures. She didn't like him at all, and yet he continued to bother her. Lee's older half-brother, George Davenport, had been known to have some sort of dispute or argument, and Genulat had told other people that he wanted revenge on Davenport. The night Lee disappeared, Genulat had been at the ball field, but he separated from the friends he went with, and then he disappeared for at least 90 minutes that night. On the day that Lee's remains were found in Muckley Creek, Genulat had volunteered information to a friend about what had happened to Lee. He said she had been raped, she had been shot, and she had been tortured by having sticks rammed down her throat. At the time that he made this statement to his friend, it was at least an hour before the state crime lab had actually examined her and assessed all of the violations against her person. Melody Bartlett Russian was a woman who testified in the matter of the fight between Genulette and George Davenport. She said she had overheard Genulette at a local bar talking to Derek Henderson, which was one of the guys he was with at the ball fields that night. She heard him say, he got me that time, but I got his. And when Henderson asked about the car that Genulet had borrowed from Deborah Slaughter, Melanie Bartlett Russian said he had replied, I think I got it clean. I don't think Deborah's worried. Hmm. So they haven't checked the green Camaro yet? They did, okay. but all they found in there was some hair. So he and a small amount. It and... They found some hair and a small amount of blood. Oof, but okay. I'll come to that stuff. Forensic analysis concluded that the pubic hair found on Lee's genes was consistent with Genulet's and could be his, but since there wasn't DNA testing available in 1980, there was no way to ascertain that it actually belonged to him. Hair samples found in the back seat of Deborah Slaughter's green Camaro were determined to bear an overwhelming similarity to Lee Bell's head hair. Also, blood was found in the back seat of the car, but it was in such a small quantity that it could not, in 1980, be determined as to whether it came from an animal or a human. Chignolette had told Deborah Slaughter that he had transported an injured dog to the veterinarian. Deborah Slaughter later testified she had found that not to be true. A man named Greg Farr that I mentioned early on as having been at the ball fields and he had been the guy with the party. Greg Farr testified he had been at the ball fields with Chignolette from 9 o'clock until 10.30 on the night of Lee's disappearance. But his testimony was somewhat marginalized by the fact that on August 28, 1979, two and a half months after Lee's murder, Greg Farr's house had sustained a suspicious fire. The fire propagated from two origins. One fire was in the kitchen, which was a grease fire. There was a skillet full of grease, which was on fire. Mm -hmm. The burner was still lit, and there was a towel lying on the stove between two burners. Okay. The other fire in the same house at the same time was in the bedroom. 
It was on the bed, and it came from unknown origins. So it had nothing to do with the fire in the kitchen. So it's literally at the exact same time, simultaneously, there's two points of origin for this guy. Exactly. Okay. And the one in the kitchen is understandable. It's, you know, you could see how that would happen. Mm -hmm. The one in the bedroom, there's no explanation for whatsoever. Okay. Farr claimed that he was not at home when the fire started. Fire marshals said he showed up between 5 and 5.30 a.m. According to the fire marshal's report, a car had been heard leaving the house shortly before the fire was discovered and reported. So someone went there, set the fire, took off, and Farr stayed away until early in the morning. According to Bobby Duke, who was an EMT who was the first on site at the fire and in charge of the investigation, he said it took him a while to put all this together, Greg Farr to George Genulette. But after I found out whose house it was, it made sense if they'd had that girl, they would have burned the bedroom up because it would have destroyed all the evidence right there. Yeah, and if she was violently raped, mm-hmm. that does add up. Farr testified that some of Genulette's clothing and his mattress had been at Farr's home at the time of the fire. Of course, this is speculation on the fire marshal's part because there was never any evidence that Lee had been taken to anyone's home, but if there had been any, it would have been destroyed in that fire. Having moved on from the fire, three members of the America's Police Department testified under oath that Sumter County Sheriff Randy Howard was of bad character and should not be believed, even under oath. After four days of testimony, the jury was sent to deliberate. Eleven women and one man deliberated for four hours and concluded that Genulette was not guilty. The courtroom, the family, the town were all stunned. Even Genulette sat in confused silence, looking back and forth between his defense counselors until he quietly began crying with relief. Twenty years later, in the year 2000, a confidential informant came forward to testify about secondhand information he had held for some time. The story of the confidential informant, now known to be a man named Jerry Smith, had been told by a retired law enforcement officer named Chuck Hanks. Hanks said that his friend, Rodney Collins, had confided that he knew about the death of Lee Bell. Collins had been at Greg Farr's house. While Collins was there, Genulot and Lee came in through the door together. This alleged eyewitness didn't think Lee seemed to be under duress, just hanging out. The four of them, Collins, Farr, Genulet, and Lee Bell, apparently all drank a beer and smoked a little cannabis, and then Genulet and Lee went together into the bedroom. Suddenly, there were a lot of violent sounds coming out of that bedroom. Collins freaked out and left the house. Rather than to call for help, because he probably had been smoking pot, he just took that information, went home, and kept it to himself. Chuck Hanks claimed that he had tried to report this information to the Sumter County Sheriff, but that Sheriff Howard told him he didn't want to hear it. When asked about it, Sheriff Howard said that he had been aware of Rodney Collins' name since early on, but there was nothing for them to pursue. And I think that's why it's relevant that those three police officers from the America's Police Department said that he had bad character because he had a chance to take this information and he just didn't want to deal with it. And if he had taken it at the time before they burnt all the evidence down in that house, oh. Yeah. When Chuck Hanks called the America's Police Department, kind of got the same result. He spoke to investigator Nelson Brown, but Brown later denied that there was ever any interview with Hanks. So Chuck Hanks claimed to have tried to give the information to both local law enforcement agencies and that neither of them would take his statement. Chuck Hanks later returned to law enforcement and had the opportunity to compare notes between the Sumter County Sheriff's Office and the America's Police Department case files for Lee Bell. Hanks then contacted Rodney Collins directly 
who was shocked by the questioning, shocked that he had been called on Mm -hmm. to talk about this. And initially, he claimed that he had no idea what they were talking about. But after they left, he had a chance to think it over, and Collins called them back. He said maybe he did remember something after all. On August 14, 2015, Rodney Collins was interviewed by the GBI at their office in Americus, Georgia. Collins stated in this interview that in June 1979, and this was before her disappearance, he had been at a friend, Harold Clifton's house, when a couple arrived at the house looking to buy some pot. Clifton didn't have any on hand to sell to them, so Collins offered to go to Greg Farr's house to buy the pot for them, and then he was going to take it back to the house and sell it to the couple. Okay, so that's how he ended up at the house. That's how he ended up at Farr's house. So he went to Greg Farr's house to buy the pot for them, and there he saw Genulette and a young teenage girl who looked to him like Lee Bell. They all smoked a joint, and then Genulette and the girl he believed to be Lee went into a bedroom, and a few minutes later he heard her say, I don't like it that way. After that, she got loud, according to Collins, which he later revised to say she was screaming. When Greg Farr went in to check that everything was okay, Collins bolted out the back door. Collins then stated that he had seen the girl again, the girl he believed to be Lee, outside of Farr's house again several days later. So the night Collins allegedly saw Lee there wasn't the night she disappeared, but it would directly link Genulette to her, and it would show that he had not respected her when she told him no. By 2019, all of the suspects had died and only Chuck Hanks was still living. He said that if Rodney Collins had been interviewed when the case was still warm, they would have been able to solve it. But the moment had passed when no one in law enforcement would listen to Hanks years earlier. The new Sumter County Sheriff, Pete Smith, said that he was, quote, 99% sure it was George Genulette, but the tainted evidence, like I said, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but if I had handled it, it would have been different. I'm not saying I'm smarter than anybody else involved, but dot, 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 dot. When asked about the forensic evidence that was taken from the case, the hairs, swabs, clothing, blood, fingernail scrapings, etc., there is a conflict in the information on where those went. Mm -hmm. The GBI states it was all returned to the Sumter County Sheriff's Office. The Americas Police Department says they were told by GBI that it had been sent to the Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office claims it was never returned to them from GBI. So it's either lost or it's been destroyed. Mm -hmm. Former Sheriff Smith of Sumter County commented that as soon as that blanket was used to obscure Lee's body after retrieving her from the creek, much of the physical evidence was already tainted. The head of the state crime lab had been furious about this and made it clear that this was against all protocols. So what it comes down to is that it is possible that Lee Bell was consensually involved with George Genulette, but in our world, in 2023, no one thinks a 15-year-old can consent to a sexual relationship with a 27-year-old. Now we think of that guy as a predator, and it sounds as if that guy was a predator. In 1990, the Bell family left Americus and relocated their home base to Birmingham, Alabama to be nearer to their oldest daughter, Kathy's family. Later, Kathy stated that if George Genulette had done this, he would have had to have help. She called him a transient from Warner Robins, which was hours away by car. Kathy had called GBI and asked about testing the evidence for DNA, but since the evidence is missing, this will likely never take place. George Genulette died in 2005 at the age of 55, never having been convicted of the death of Margaret Lee Bell. He was buried in Hagen, Georgia. Kathy expressed her aggravation that although the potential suspects or witnesses might have been deceased by 2005 or 2010 or later, they hadn't been deceased at the time the investigation was still active, and it was clear to her and many people that the result should not have been dumped into the cold cases. In other words, it seems that the investigation was more or less shelved after Genulette's acquittal. 
Lee's half-brother George Davenport died in 1998, 19 years after Lee's murder. He had been diagnosed as diabetic at the age of 8 and had continuing health issues until he had a heart attack at 41 and didn't survive it. Lee's sister Melanie also died too young. She had worked as a movie producer, contributing to some really amazing movies like Fried Green Tomatoes. She worked on Meet Joe Black, Consenting Adults, Driving Miss Daisy, but Melanie's inner demons proved to be too strong. At the age of 36, she was living in Birmingham, Alabama, but she was working in Las Vegas. Melanie had long suffered with anorexia nervosa and severe depression, and these things might have come from the events that happened to her sister. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get over a thing like that. She had recently been released from a clinic for treatment of her anorexia, where through hard work she had managed to gain 40 pounds. She was in Las Vegas working on an experimental reality show that was about Elvis impersonators called Vegas Elvis. The film crew was a featured part of that cast. An article in the UK publication The Independent from May 24, 2005 makes a point that perhaps a person who has suffered from body dysmorphia for most of her life might not be the best candidate to put on the spot as a cast member because of the inner turmoil she might have about the 40 pounds she finally had been able to gain during her treatment. Mm -hmm. While she would appear healthy to most people, she might have been struggling with seeing herself on camera with that 40 pounds that internally she had fought so long not to carry. On March 25, 2005, she left her car in the parking deck at then Stratosphere Hotel, which is now called the Strat. Melanie bought a ticket to visit the 1,149-foot-high open-air observation deck. She left her keys at the front desk, went up to the observation deck, and jumped to her death, being found on the third-floor roof over the hotel's main entrance. From everything I read, the Bell family sounded like good people. They were civic-minded, they were kind, they tried to do the right thing by people. And yet Leland and Catherine Bell had to go through absolute hell three times losing their children. Shows you again the domino effect on a family and like people that loved that person. That's right. So there was never any justice for Lee Bell and really hard to say whether Genulette was guilty. It sure seems like he might have been. Sounds like it. Yeah. So Brian, I hope that that did justice to Lee Bell. You better have something good for me today after all this. For my survivor today, I'm going to tell you about a really amazing woman who is named Kimberly Morton. In 1998, Kimberly Morton, at the age of 20 years old, was living in South Memphis, Tennessee, in an apartment complex with her mother and younger brother. This apartment complex was low-income housing, and she became really close to all the people in the surrounding apartment units, and they really kind of looked out for each other, and it was sort of a, the entire complex was a family. Like, oh, that person needs to go out of town? Give me all your kids. I'll take them this weekend. And that was just everybody in the complex. Okay. With that being said, Kim looked at everybody in the apartment complex as her own extended family. Kim grew especially close to the family in the unit right above hers. She was on the ground floor, and then on the second floor, there was a boyfriend and girlfriend who was pregnant. She was eight months pregnant at this time. And then they also had three younger kids. But the couple were about the same age as 20-year-old Kim. So they got along really well, and they were her hangout buddies. Whenever the kids would go to bed, they'd go sit out on the porch. It was just the regular for them. Okay. The couple began referring to Kim to anybody that would ask them as their little sister. That Aww. was just their thing. And vice versa. She'd call them my big bro and my big sis. And they eventually named Kim as their, I told you the girlfriend was pregnant, their, that child's godmother. Around this time, Kim had gotten some prospective offers with modeling gigs. She had been scouted, and 
So Kim went out and she decided to get some headshots in order to build her portfolio to officially submit that to them. And when she told her big siblings upstairs, they were very encouraging and proud of her because at this point, Kim hadn't even graduated from high school. She didn't have a GED or anything, and they were just proud of her for putting herself out there. Okay. As soon as the photos from that photo shoot came back, Kim went ahead and took a look at them, and she said they were just absolutely beautiful. So, of course, she immediately ran upstairs and showed off to her best friends, look how good they turned out, and they all just squealed together. (laughs) She said they were flipping through the book of photos together and they came across one of Kim in a bathing suit and the upstairs boyfriend neighbor got to that photo and immediately pushed away and said, oh, I don't want to see that exactly like a big brother would do. (laughs) And then they all laughed it off and Kim went back downstairs to her unit. (laughs) A couple of days later, on November 19th, 1998, Kim got up to go to work as normal And as she began to move around in the kitchen, making coffee, just getting her day started, she realized she was feeling really queasy and kind of not really up to going to work. She just went, crawled back into bed, and fell back to sleep. No one else was home at this point, so her mom and brother had left for the day. About 15 minutes after she laid back down in her bed, she heard some taps coming from her window in her bedroom. Which I know sounds creepy as hell, but to Kim, this was normal. I guess when they didn't know if her parents would be home or not, the couple would come down, and since she was on the first floor, they would just communicate with Kim through the window if they needed, hey, we're out of eggs or something like that. (laughs) And also, the couple upstairs did not have a landline phone, so anytime they needed to call somebody, they would come down to Kim's unit and use her phone. Okay. So that was a very common occurrence. So when she heard this tapping on her window, she was like, what do they want? (laughs) So she sat up, pulled up the blinds to see that it was her friend upstairs, who I can now tell you is named Carlos. Okay. And I don't know his last name. It's either Turner or Thomas. Every article is different. Oh, yeah. I hate those. So Carlos is knocking on the window. He just waved at her and said, hey, Kim, let me in the front door. And so she said, okay, I'll meet you over there. And she went ahead, unlocked the front door for him, and he just walked right in past her, went straight for the phone. (laughs) Kim, of course, this has happened a thousand times before. She's like, okay, you could at least say please, you know, and just let him go to it. And then as soon as he picked up the phone, she remembered, oh, the phone's dead, Carlos. I am so sorry. I forgot that last month I I was late on the payment, and so it's going to be down for another week or so. before. Oh, boy. Carlos just nodded at her understandingly and put it back on its dock. Then he turns around, and Kim said he kind of looked like he could tell on her face she wasn't feeling great, so he just said, what's wrong with you? And Kim said, oh, you know, I'm not not feeling too good today. I wanted to skip work and play hooky, essentially. And she said he just nodded understandingly, and she thought he was about to just walk out the front door again. But then out of nowhere, he reaches out to her. She thinks he's going for a hug, wraps both hands around her neck, and just starts throttling and strangling her. What? Yeah. Well, that's bizarre. What the hell? What the hell, Carlos? Jesus, what a bizarre thing to do. And then he drags her by her throat back to her bedroom. Once he got her there, he proceeded to rape her. While Kim, this entire time, she said she was still in a daze and confused. And thinking, maybe I just didn't actually wake up. Maybe this is a nightmare. Because there's no way Carlos, my big brother, is doing this right now. Seriously. When he was done, Carlos picked up the pillow from her bed and held it over her face. But when that wasn't working fast enough, he got angry and threw that to the floor. And Kim began to fight back. She's realizing, oh no, this is really happening. This is not the person I thought it was. Yeah. He got behind her on the bed. So she's sitting upright. 
He's behind her, and he begins to put her in a chokehold with his elbow. Okay. Kim now is doing, what is it that your survivor said? Hard, hard bones to soft skin. Hard bones to soft skin. That's exactly what she did. She took her elbows and was jabbing him in the ribs and the stomach, anywhere she could get, and even scratching his face as much as she could. But she eventually could feel the energy leaving her body and was not able to fight back any longer, so she slowly lost consciousness. When she woke up, it's not known how long she was out. She could see that she was still lying in her bed, except now she was in a huge puddle of blood, and it, she was just covered in it, and she didn't know what had happened, if it was even her blood at this point. She looks down to the end of her bed, and Carlos is just sitting there at the end, just looking off into space at the wall. She began to sit up on the bed and say, What happened, Carlos? Was that a dream? What? Are you hurt? Like, what's going on? As she started to stand up, she realized she had a huge jabbing pain in her rib. So she looks down, and there's still a steak knife sticking out between two of her ribs. Carlos ushered her back down onto the bed and said, Don't get up! Don't get up! And she said, I just want to go to the bathroom and take a look. I need to see what's going on. And he said, No, you need to go to a hospital. And she said, Okay, well, can you go get help? Then, I guess he just sat on the end of her bed for a while, just talking to her and apologizing to her and saying, I am so sorry I didn't mean to do this to you. And then he would go from that caring Carlos she had always known and then immediately flip. In one conversation she talked about, he said, Kim, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this to you. And Kim asked him, why did you do it then? And he just immediately flipped back into rage mode and said, you know why. So he clearly was not mentally stable in this moment. Obviously, yes. Eventually, he stood up and kind of just matter-of-fact told her, I have to go, and I'm either going to have to shoot you, or I'm going to have to beat you to death. And essentially asked her, which one would you prefer? How nice. I would prefer that you just leave. Yeah, Kim ended up bargaining with him and told him that she wouldn't tell anyone who did it. He was saved. She would say, no idea who this guy was. Never seen him before, as long as he just left. And he said, okay, we can do that if you swear. I trust you. And then he said, I'm just going to go ahead and take your TV from your living room, and we can pretend it was a robbery gone wrong. Okay. And she said, uh-huh, sure, Carlos, just get the fuck out, you know? Yeah, take it, take whatever you want. So he unhooked the TV, and then he said, okay, I'm going to go call for help for you. I don't believe you. Uh-huh, sure you are. Yeah. As he left the apartment, she immediately got up from her bed and was like, fuck that, I'm not waiting here. She stood up. There was, I guess, a mirror on the back of her bedroom door. She looked into that for the first time, and she realized her entire throat was open gaping oh, she had multiple stab wounds to her chest How and then that was she still alive in the amount of blood that she was losing at this point i can't believe she could even move seriously now that she's seen herself in the mirror she realizes this is actually really serious she starts going down the hallway back to the front door and just as she's about to walk out the front door she realizes that's where carlos just went and so she went ahead and had the forethought to think oh, I have a higher chance of running into him if I go out this door. So she locked the front door and then starts making her way to the back of the apartment to leave through the backyard. Okay, so they had two doors. They had two. Just as she stepped outside, she heard the doorknob to the front door starting to open again. Oh, wow. So that weird instinct she had to go and lock that door behind her before he could come back was right on point. Yeah. And she was successfully able to get a couple steps into the backyard and then shout to another neighbor nearby. She got that neighbor's attention. She heard the front door behind her just bust open. He had kicked it all the way down. Wow. 
The neighbor immediately recognized Kim, so she ran over to help her and started taking the weight off of her to help walk her to her unit, which was two doors down. And as soon as she got her into the unit, all the other neighbors that were in nearby units had heard Kim screaming and knew, that's Kim, what's going on? And everybody rushed down to help her. Aww, aww, how sweet. One person called 911, one person was holding the pressure on her neck wound, and then another person was holding around the rib wound where the steak knife still was. Kim's cousin also lived in one of the nearby units, so she showed up. In the middle of all of this makeshift triage they have going on, Carlos walks in the front door of this neighbor's apartment. None of these neighbors know it was Carlos because Kim hasn't talked. Now that he's in the room with her, she's too scared to say, that's the guy, you Mm -hmm. know? Finally, the paramedics did arrive. As she was being wheeled out on the stretcher to the ambulance, Kim locked eyes. She looked up to the unit where Carlos lived and immediately locked eyes with his girlfriend, who was one of her best friends in the whole world. And she said they shared a knowing look. And immediately she could tell, oh, that's where Carlos was, wasn't it? Oh, wow. So. Wow, just imagine the <clears throat> finding out that the person you love and that you're raising children with, that that person is just a monster. Well, they had three young children, and she was eight months pregnant right now when this wow. happened. Yeah. So Kim actually didn't have to tell the police who had done this at all. Immediately, a police officer got into the ambulance and asked, did Carlos Turner do this to you? Oh, wow. Carlos was immediately arrested at the scene. Once at the hospital, Kim's injuries were revealed. When she had been unconscious, Carlos had completely soaked her entire body in bleach, hoping to get rid of any evidence he had left on her body, assuming she was probably going to die from these wounds. That's really, really burning for your skin. Yeah, and that resulted in Kim sustaining second-degree chemical burns to 50% of her body. Poor thing. That had to be terribly painful. The day before the trial was set to begin, Carlos actually waived his right to a jury and all that and just immediately pled guilty to all of the charges against him, which there were only two, first-degree attempted murder and aggravated rape. Both of those separately held 15-year sentences. However, since they occurred on the same day, I guess it's Tennessee law, if it all happened at the same time, then they're concurrent. That's bullshit. Yeah. He received technically 30 years, but 15 years in prison. So if he had just come in and punched her in the face and got 15 years, mm-hmm. and now then, he comes in, he punches her in the face, and he rapes her, and he still gets 15 years. Yep. That's bullshit. After her attack, Kimberly moved to New York, where she ended up getting her GED and then also got a, an associate's degree in human services. Wow. In 2011... Only 12 years after he was sentenced, Carlos was released from prison early. Even though, in the state of Tennessee, anybody with a violent sexual assault charge, it's mandatory. You have to serve the absolute full term that you are sentenced. So Kim saw this and was like, "Uh uh-uh. And so she went and did her own research and then found there was actually, that is the law in Tennessee, but there's a loophole where if they have good behavior in prison, they can shred off 15% of their time, which is so beyond bullshit. It's a trade-off. It's instead of considering the justice to the victim, they're considering the ease of keeping this prisoner locked up mm-hmm. and keeping an orderly prison. And yeah, that's important. But you know what? It's also important to the victim and the survivor to know that what happened to them is being punished. Matters. 
is being punished to the extent of the law. Mm-hmm. That she was promised. That, yeah. You know? And she thought she would have at least another three years to cope with what had happened. And now it's just, well, sorry, he's out there free. Can do whatever he wants now. Wow. This rightfully infuriated Kim. Naturally. Even though, at this point, there's nothing she could do to stop or reverse the decision as far as Carlos and his case was concerned, Kim decided to take a stand for everybody else in the future that this might happen to. So, after I told you she started studying the Tennessee law to figure out how he had gotten released early, Kim decided to write a bill to close that loophole. Good. Once and for all, said, if they are promised 15 years, they are not getting out no matter how good they are in prison, no matter how many extra jobs they picked up. That was the bill that she wrote up herself, and then she submitted it to the lawmakers of Tennessee. And in 2012, Kimberly's Law was approved. It's literally just called Kimberly's Law. Wow, good. Yep. Which will prevent any future violent sexual offenders from getting any time off of their sentence after sentencing. Kim has since then, it said in 2019, returned back to New York and actually started her undergrad in law at Utica College. Good for her. Wow. Yeah. She realized that if this is legal in Tennessee, imagine how many other states have these weird loopholes that nobody knows about until this happens to them. And so that's her mission, is to make this not just a Tennessee law, but a federal law instead. And one of her law professors actually told her, you know what, you are so passionate about getting Kimberly's Law into the federal status, How about you go ahead, focus on that, write up your thesis on that, and then we can go ahead. I'll give you school credit for it. And so she's still getting credit by doing what she originally wanted to do in the first place. Wow. Yeah. Well, and and it's something that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. It's not just just theoretical. This is actually something that makes people's lives better. Change a lot of lives. And I just think that's so... I am just very proud of Kim and what she went through and how she got past it. Yeah. That's amazing. I think that's really awesome. It is really awesome. How she started without even a GED. I was just going to say that. And now she's doing more than most people that have ever gone to college could think to do. Yeah. Yeah. Kimberly is only like 40 now, so like she's probably, at this point, who knows how many laws she's going to change in her future. Yeah. She hasn't even graduated from law school yet. Wow. Well, good for her. She really took the bull by the horns. She sure did. Or as one of my old bosses used to say, took the bullet by the horns. <laughs> Excuse me, I think it's, you took the bulletin by the horns. <laughs> That's a, you took the bulletin point by the <laughs> But you th- It took the bulletin by the point. We've just gone too far. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in to episode 67, and we'll be back next week with episode 68. Bye. Bye. Meow. Meow. Evidence that was taken from the case, the hairs, swabs, clothing, food. I said food. There should have been blood. I was really confused. (laughs) Although the potential suspects or witnesses might have been decreased by 2005 or 2010 or later, they hadn't been decreased. Jesus Christ, what is wrong with me today? I'm so confused with that last sentence. (laughs) Even though they might have been decreased, they have not been decreased. What? So which is it? (laughs) They weren't decreased. This happened, but I'm just kidding. It didn't happen. They weren't decreased. (laughs) They were deceased. Add a letter, change a word. Eventually. I hope he had not been seeing Dr. Stuart Wiggins. (laughs) That would explain quite a bit, wouldn't it? Yes. They can't afford a phone, but they just have dozens of bottles of bleach on hand. Kids, you know?
Carlos, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. Very real. God, what is my I, obsession with Slovakia? 